ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Mark Brandy is an author who likes to write about people living on the margins of Australian life. Mark's latest novel, called Southern Aurora, is set in a small country town, halfway between Melbourne and Sydney, and it takes its name from the old overnight train that ran between the two cities. Mark Brandy writes about the people living on the periphery with energy and compassion. His insights come from his time working in the prison system and from his early life growing up in a pub in country Victoria. Mark's parents were Italian migrants, and Mark's dad in particular was somewhat happy to put half a world between himself and the old country, where his early life had been overshadowed by a dangerous and violent man, Mark's grandfather, Luigi. Mark's grandmother, Antonia, eventually escaped her husband and Italy as well, and she joined the family in Victoria. But then Luigi showed up there too. And today, Mark's grandparents are buried side by side in Melbourne. Hello, Mark. Welcome. Thanks, Richard. Great to be with you. This story, your story, begins in Italy. Tell me about where in Italy your father, Tommaso, was born. What part of Italy are we talking about? Yeah, Dad was born in a place called Rocca Fluvione, which is just northeast of Rome, very rural area. Dad grew up in an old stone house on this very remote farm. There was no running water, no electricity or anything like that. Dad was the second eldest of, of seven children. Life was fairly tough. Yeah, how was his father, Luigi, with him? Luigi was a, a very violent man. He was an alcoholic and a womanizer as well. He used to beat his children, beat his wife. And on one occasion, he actually assaulted his wife, my grandmother, so severely that one of the neighbouring farmers contacted the police. And if you think about it, for that time in Italy, which is a very conservative, very patriarchal society, that was quite uncommon because people pretty much kept to themselves. So the police were going to come out and speak to Luigi and he got wind of it. He heard through some of the locals that they were on their way. And so there was a bit of panic in the household. And I remember Dad telling me this story because he'd witnessed his father beating up his mum and he was worried about the police asking him about it. And he asked his mum and said, if the police ask me what happened, what should I say? And she looked at him and said, tell the truth. And so when the police came, saw the injuries that my grandmother had and asked my my dad, he, he told them what he saw. She said, tell the truth. So I suppose then we might imagine that your grandmother was trapped, but not cowed by this man. No, no. She was a a pretty feisty lady. She became very resilient and and very strong. And I think that her later behaviour, it really demonstrated that. Are there any theories on why he was such a violent man? You mentioned there was alcoholism there, but might that have been a symptom of something else? Can we guess? What do you think, Mark? There may have been some underlying mental health issues. My brothers recall him quite clearly when they were growing up, my older brothers, and they say he was just a very serious, very angry man, very hot-tempered. You just would not want to step out of line in front of him. As to why he was like that, who knows? I think, yeah, a combination probably of mental health issues, the alcohol abuse probably led to that kind of behaviour. But, you know, Dad really, he he didn't like talking about his father when when I was growing up. It was very rare that he spoke about his dad. Did he ever come close to doing serious damage to your dad? On one occasion, after they'd had a row on the farm and Dad sort of left the farmhouse and was walking across the paddock, Luigi got the rifle and fired a gun at him across the farm. How old was your dad at the time? I think he was a teenager at the time when that happened. So how did your dad escape the clutches of his father? Yeah, look, that time in Italy, and particularly because they were quite a poor family, to get an education 
was something kind of beyond the reach of, of most farming families for their children to go to a decent school beyond elementary school. So a lot of kids just finished at primary school. Dad was sort of earmarked as being kind of the uh, intellectual of the family, of the, the, the seven kids. His older brother, as he put it, was a bit more solid, a bit more burly. And so he was earmarked to take over the farm. And so dad was sent away to a college to study to be a priest. Yeah, I was going to say, that was always the thing, wasn't it? The, the, the big, strong eldest son would take over the farm. The bright second son would be developed as an intellectual by going into the priesthood. That's right. That's right. And did he do that? He, he didn't go into the priesthood in the end, but he, he went away to this college and he loved it there. He really, really loved it. And he spoke so fondly of those times to me and the, the friends that he made when he was there. I remember one of the only times I ever saw him cry was when he described his best friend, probably when he was about 16, stepped on a nail on the school grounds and developed tetanus. And he, he died as a result of that. And my dad was absolutely devastated. Now, you know, my, my dad, growing up in the environment that he grew up in, he was a very resilient and stoic man as an adult. Um, he rarely showed those kind of emotions. So I, I know that really affected him. And in fact, whenever I've been sort of working on my own house or have done some minor renovations, I remember at one point I pulled up some floorboards in an old Victorian house I was living in, in in Brunswick in Melbourne. I was having the house re-stumped and I had all the floorboards stacked out in the backyard, these old thick Baltic pine boards. And dad went out there and removed every single nail from all of the boards <laughs> because he was just so This fearful. will not happen to my son. That's right, exactly right. right. He That's won't get tetanus and die. No, mm. no. And he... He loved that time at college. He, um, I remember he, he would tell me how he was given a supervisory role by the priests of the other students and was also the designated barber of the school. So he used to cut the other kid's hair. Did he cut your hair as a kid? Yes. Yes, he did. He <laughs> I'm did. so sorry, mate. I'm so sorry. <laughs> the, uh, the, the school photos are a, a testament to that, his skills. But he was actually quite good. But, but as you'd appreciate, right. it wasn't really the, um, the style that us boys liked in the 1980s. <laughs> so how did your dad get the idea to come to Australia, land of plenty but with bad wine and coffee, such as it was in those days <laughs> in the 50s? Yeah. Well, his older brother had left the farm and moved to Australia, had come to Melbourne. And so his father, Luigi, wanted dad to take over the farm. So dad worked on the farm for a period, but ultimately got a bit jack of it, frankly. That and, tyrannical old bugger, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he decided to, to follow his brother out to Melbourne. How did he like it once he got here? Oh, he loved it. He got a job on the railways, the Victorian railways, as a train driver and he used to drive the goods trains all around Victoria. And he loved that job. He really, really loved it. Got to see all this countryside. And for many years afterwards, he, he talked about his experiences. I mean, he encountered a little bit of, of racism at the time, being the quote-unquote new Australian. Mm. And, and some, some of the uh, railway employees were concerned about new arrivals taking their jobs. But he, he never really dwelled on that. He always focused on the good times that he had. You know, that classic movie, They're a Weird Mob, where there's an Italian migrant's adventures in post-war Australia. The other reason why Nino Colotta gets into trouble is because he actually works hard. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> he gets Australia and they go, steady on, mate, slow down a bit. But, Was but, your dad a hard, natural hard worker like that too? Very much right. so, very much. <laughs> and a perfectionist. Like, everything had to be done just so. And so he, he saved some money while he was working on the railways and he bought some properties around Melbourne, as a lot of Italians and migrants were, were kind of inclined to do. And he, he bought a farm out at, at Epping, the first of many farms over the course of his life. And so how did he meet your mum, who was also Italian? About five years into his time here in Australia and in Melbourne, he accumulated some leave from uh, the railway's job. He had about three months leave. So he decided to go back to Italy to see his family. And in the intervening period since he left Italy, his mother, um, my grandmother, had actually left my grandfather. She had taken a horse and cart from their property with, I think, three of the youngest children. And that was driven about two hours away to a small village called Ortezzano. 
And so what had been arranged was that she would move into a council flat, so effectively public housing, to get away from Luigi. So Dad went back to Ortizano, and Ortizano, I've, I've been there. It's this beautiful little picture postcard, medieval village, hilltop village. It's absolutely stunning. There's only like three or 400 people who live there. And so Dad moved into this flat for a few months with his mum and his younger siblings. And in the town, everyone went to church of a Sunday. That was kind of the done thing. And so on this particular Sunday, Dad was on his way to church with his mum and his younger sister. And he spotted this woman up walking up ahead with her friends, this young woman. And he said to his mum, who's that? And she said, that's Tomasina Chirocchi. And if I tell a little bit about my mum's story, because when my mum was born and christened Thomasina, she became very, very unwell. And in fact, so sick that a priest came and performed the last rites on her. So my grandmother, she made a bit of a pilgrimage. There's a town called Loreto, which is a very famous town in Italy. There's a church there and Inside the church, so the story goes, is the house that the Virgin Mary was born and raised in. That's the place of holy miracles then. Exactly. So my grandmother went there, my maternal grandmother, and she took an offering. She took all the jewellery that she owned, her best linen, and asked the Virgin Mary for a miracle that her daughter might live. And fortunately, she did. And so my mum and dad met. It was a very quick courtship because dad only had three months before he had to come back to work on the railways. And I know it's a cliche, but it, was it one of those quick courtships where when they'd go for walks together, there'd be a thousand maiden aunts trailing around a chaperone in the background? Is <laughs> yeah, all that going that's on too? Right. That's all right. Well, you know, everyone in that town knew who they were right. and knew who dad was and that, you know, that they sort of spotted him as being, you know, a, a bit of a catch, I guess. Well, was he, he a was... big shot who'd, been, who'd made, done well in the new world? Is that that's what it was. That's right. exactly right. He was seen as being a bit, bit worldly, and um, you know, and a success story. And so he was a bit of a catch. And I think, from my dad's perspective, my mum was a very attractive young woman, and and they fell in love. It wasn't an arranged marriage or anything like that. I, I remember my mum saying that on the morning of the wedding, when she was fitted for the wedding dress, her mother came into the room and said, "You know, you don't have to go through with this if you don't want to." But she. She stuck to her guns and, and I think my, my grandmother was worried about her going across the other side of the world with this man she barely knew. That she'd given up all her bed linen for. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Jewellery and every piece. So, so, when, so they came to Melbourne. What kind of a life did they make for themselves in Melbourne? Very happy life. At first, um, you know, my mum didn't speak any English and so my, my dad taught her a few key phrases and one of those was, have you got a job for me? And they went across to a canning factory, a fruit canning factory in Hawthorne, and mum recited this phrase to the uh, employers, and fortunately they had a job. And so she worked there. Dad continued on the railways. They bought a house in Mooney Ponds and were very happy together. And their their first son, uh, Jim, my eldest brother, was born in 1963. How about your grandmother? She'd escaped to this other town. Mm. When did she come out and join you? So Luigi wasn't very happy. As you can imagine, his entire family had basically left him. He was there on the farm. And so he pursued my grandmother to Ortizano. She didn't want to have a bar of him. So she came over to Melbourne in, I think, around 1965. And she moved in with my parents in Mooney Ponds Mum was welcoming of her being there because she understood her situation, but at the same time, it was a a very, very crowded house. How long was it before Luigi, your grandfather, twigged to the fact that his estranged wife had made it all the way out to Australia? I think it was very shortly thereafter, and one of their daughters was keen for them to actually reunite. Oh, no. Because at that time, I suppose, it was seen by some as being a bit of a a shameful 
thing to have your parents separated in that way. It would have been very, very unusual, wouldn't it? Oh, extremely it's unusual. For couples to be separated. Absolutely. At that time in Italy, almost unheard of. And, and recognising too that the region they come from, Le Marche, is a, a former papal state under the control of the Vatican. So Roman Catholicism runs very, very deeply in that area and still does. So what happened when Luigi showed up in Victoria, in Melbourne? Yeah, he showed up and my aunt, their daughter, still wanted them to get together and invited him to come and stay with with his wife, um, his separated wife. She flatly refused to see him and just did not want to have anything to do with him. Was he trying to make amends or trying to coerce her back into his life or what? I think it was more the coercion than anything else. And he, he stayed with my father's older brother and was, you know, desperate for them to to reunite. But but no, she, she held held true. I mean, I don't think she could even contemplate the idea of going back with him. And what about your dad? What was it like for him to have this this man be close at hand once again on the other side of the world? Mm. Oh, look, Dad had a very, as, you, as you, you'd understand, I think, a, a very volatile relationship with his father. Did it um, change things that your father was now a full-grown man and his old man was an older man where he couldn't be quite so physically intimidating towards his son? Yeah, that's right. I mean, that they would have some fearsome rows. I mean, in their family, and I think as a product of, of their upbringing being what it was and a very dysfunctional, it's probably an understatement to call it a dysfunctional household. I mean, it was a, a very, very difficult upbringing. They often argued very, very loud in dad's family and among the siblings, between the parents and siblings. And I remember my my mum saying that she was just completely shocked and unused to this kind of environment because she'd grown up in a very happy house, a very supportive house, and just had never encountered anything like this. So tell me about the last fight your father had with his father, your grandfather. It was in 1978. My dad and his father had an argument. I think it, was, it may have been about the the farm back in Italy. And my father said to Luigi, why have you always hated me? Is it because of that time when I was a kid and I told the police what you did to mum? And he looked at my father and said, Yes, and I've never forgiven you for it. And my my dad looked at him and said, I'll be happy if I never, ever see you again. And that was the last conversation they had. What happened after that conversation? A few days later, my grandfather rang my auntie in a, a bit of a panic in the morning and said, I've had this terrible, terrible nightmare I had my father appear before me in a dream and he said to me, if you lose all your hair, you will die. And my grandfather was quite a superstitious man and he he took this to heart and he asked my, my auntie, his daughter, you know, what, what can I do about this? What can I do to stop my hair falling out? And she suggested to him, well, you could just go to the chemist and get some kind of ointment. So on this day, he was on his way to the chemist to get this ointment to save his hair. And he was approaching an intersection. He was walking on the footpath. Up ahead was a a bus stopped at a red light. And from behind him, a truck was approaching. The truck got nearer the bus, but its brakes failed. And so it tried to avoid hitting the bus swerved, went onto the footpath and ran over my grandfather. So he, he, he died quite a, a terrible death. When he was found at the scene, he was ho- holding on to the bumper bar of the truck. And even though my dad had this very volatile, complicated relationship with his father... There was this underlying respect for the fact that he was his father, rightly or wrongly, and he acknowledged that he didn't deserve to die like that. So eventually, your dad decided to buy a country pub 
A remarkable thing to do, to buy a country pub in Stall in Victoria, home of the famous Stall gift. <laughs> what possessed him to want to do that, given that Australia had such a different drinking culture compared to Italy at the time by, oh, like, poles apart? Yeah, yeah. So, so Dad was still, he was working on the railways and one day he was on his way to work. He got hit from behind by a car and he suffered some quite severe back injuries. And as a consequence of that, he was essentially forced to quit his job as a train driver because of the nature of the work. The motion of the trains um, was exacerbating his back injury. So he worked for a couple of years then as a door-to-door salesman selling uh, cookware. It was called uh, Renaware. And Dad always prided himself on this. He said he, he always made a sale in every house that he went to. Mum said it was because they wanted to get rid of him. <laughs> yeah, he had a real charisma to him. And so he, he excelled in that job, but, you know, it was a career that had a, a limited progression to it. And one day he was at his uh, doctor's, a guy named Dr. Lawrence, because he was still getting treatment for his back injury. And he overheard the doctor was on the phone when Dad went into the consulting room and he was talking about this pub he had in the country and the, the licensee had shot through and he was having all this trouble. And when he got off the call, Dad said to him, oh, have you got a pub in the country? And he goes, yeah, yeah. Well, Tom, have you ever thought about running a pub? And Dad was like, no, no. He goes, well, you know, you can't drive the trains anymore. This could be a good career path for you. And so he and Dr. Lawrence, the next day, drove down to Stall to have a look at the pub, the commercial hotel. It was just this rat-infested, uh, very decrepit old pub. It was an old you know, mining town pub, vast. It had 28 rooms for lodges, but it was in a really a terrible state. It had been abandoned for about six months. And Dad offered to buy it on the spot. And how did he break the news to your mum when he got back saying, Honey, I've just bought this run-down rat-infested pub <laughs> yeah. in country Victoria. How did your mum take the news? She she took it surprisingly well, Richard. She, she was <laughs> she was actually very very happy and very excited because, to be honest with you, she was kind of keen to get away from the volatility in my my father's extended family. And the way that she put it to me is that. She would have gone anywhere with Dad at that point. She said, I would have gone to the moon if you had have asked me. So she was very happy to go to Stall. And they went down there and they worked on it for about six months, getting it ready, kind of repainting it, and then finally reopened. I think on the first day he put on free beer for everyone who came in. That'll work. That, that, that did, <laughs> right. did the trick. And the townsfolk were very accepting of them. I think they were a bit of a novelty, you know, this Italian family running the pub down the street. And Dad sort of tried to get himself involved in the local community. He went to all the football matches despite having no interest in football at all. And, yeah, that, they made a real go of it and ultimately ran it on and off for over 35 years. A few years later, you came into the world, Mark. Where are you in the family lineup of, of kids? I'm the, the fourth boy. So, yeah, I've got three older brothers. So I've got uh, Jim's the eldest, uh, Roy, Gary, and then me. And um, I should say, yeah, like my, my parents were very keen to give us very... Aussie names, right. Anglicised yeah, names. Yeah. There was no right. Fabrizio or Giuseppe or Giovanni. It was all very simple one or two consonants. So you grew up in this pub. What are your memories of growing up in a pub as a kid? Was it fun or weird or how was it for you, Mark? Oh, Richard, it had like, there was really great aspects to it. Like I, I think I ate my own weight in potato chips and I drank... I, I can't even begin to imagine how many cans of Coke over the years that I used to get from the fridge. And the fact that I've got my teeth now is, is a miracle. <laughs> I had a lot of, lot of freedom in a way. There wasn't a lot of supervision growing up in the pub. And, you know, when I was actually when I was a toddler, because my parents were so busy running the place, when I was a toddler, I used to go down the main street. There was a toy shop. So I'd wander off from the pub. And mum said I would come back from time to time with 
a wheelbarrow or some other toy from the, the toy shop with a big smile on my face, which which she'd then take me back to return. How did you get the wheelbarrow out of the toy shop? You have no memory of this, I suppose. No, well, apparently it was out the front. They had a bit of a display, right. so I just I liked That's the look. Yeah, right. I liked the look of the wheelbarrow, and <laughs> off I went. And on another occasion, I I ended up uh, I, I I actually I'd been missing for <laughs> for a few hours, and there was a bit of panic. All the patrons from the pub were searching the streets for me. They couldn't find me. And so my, my parents had to call the police because they were, they were genuinely concerned I might have been abducted or something else had happened. Then I was found at the train station standing on the platform on my own, which was about, it was almost two kilometres from the pub. So I'd wandered a hell of a long way on my own. And you were how old? I was about three years old. <laughs> And you're waiting for a train on the platform. Presumably. I wanted to get, get to Melbourne, seemingly. I'm not sure. Or Adelaide going the other way. But um, Do you ever wonder what would happen if you'd gotten on that train? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Well, you know, it was, it was lucky the station master spotted me there and I, I got a ride home in the police car, which mum was standing in the backyard of the pub and she saw me approaching again in the, in the back seat with a big grin on my face like I just had the best <laughs> adventure ever. And you had? Yes. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to ABC net.au slash conversations. So you went to primary school in Stall in country Victoria. There probably wouldn't have been a lot of other Italian kids in that school back in those days, Mark. What was school life like for you in primary school? I don't think there was another Italian family in town. So there was certainly no cultural diversity in my primary school. The first few years there were were very tough. As kids do, I would try to make friends and, and sometimes in a very direct way, I'd just say, would you be friends with me? Kids say no when you do that, don't they? Yeah, they do. And in some cases mm. they said, my dad told me not to be friends with you because you're a wog. When I look back on it now, it was a very, very, very tough time. And I think I I was kind of scared to to tell my parents what was going on or to tell anyone about it. Why? I think I was worried, <laughs> in some way, I was worried that I could make it worse, that if my parents sort of went down to the school and intervened or something else happened. I think, too, I, I, I was I was kind of ashamed of the fact that I had no friends at school and that this was going on for those first few years. And I think I carried that for for many years afterwards. I, I was lucky that I was able to make friends a little bit later on, largely through sport. I was pretty good at cricket and footy and tennis and, and those things. And when you're good at sport, it, it's kind of harder for for kids at school to ignore you because they want you on their team. But do you think that isolation, one of the few redeeming factors of that, is that it helps you cultivate an inner life? Very much so. I think I, I, I kind of retreated into myself and into my imagination and I probably became more creative as a result because the reality of what was going on in my day-to-day life was just just too difficult to face. <laughs> this might sound a little bit odd, but I, I I kind of used our family pets as like my proxies for friends. My, my dogs became almost like my friends at home and I would talk to the dogs about my day. And I think, you know, as young kids, when that sort of stuff is happening to you, you don't have the wisdom or life experience to look at it and go, oh, well, this is not my shame. This is actually their shame or their family shame for acting like this toward me. Instead, you tend to internalise it and, and think that it's your fault in some way or that you are somehow less than others. And even though I 
I managed to to make friends through sport and through other things. I think I always carried a little bit of that feeling that I was somehow not good enough just on my own and that in order to be accepted, I sort of had to excel. And I think sometimes, you know, as I got older too, I tended to answer it a little bit with my, my fists and you become sort of like, oh, well, if you're going to say that, do you want to meet after school and we'll sort it out? And would they? No, they would often back down, Richard. This was the thing. A lot of them were, were, were all talk. But, but I did ultimately make really great friends at school and, and great friends in the town as well. So this is the 1980s we're talking about now. Mm-hmm. And it was around about this time that police started taking an interest in your parents' pub in store. How were they showing that interest, <laughs> expressing that interest in the goings-on in your dad's pub? Mum and Dad, by that stage, they'd been running the pub for, for over 20 years and they'd enjoyed a really good relationship with the local police. There was one senior police officer, an inspector, Inspector Mann, who was um, Irish, and he became a, a family friend, a long-time family friend, and... They had a really good rapport with the local police. I mean, Dad and Mum ran a very, very tight ship. As I mentioned earlier, Dad was a real perfectionist in, it, in everything that he did. In the early 80s, something, something shifted. This is the Robert Trimboli era, though, isn't it? When there was a lot of publicity about Italian marijuana crops being grown in the Riverina area. Well, it was a bit of the odium of Robert Trimboli and his associates being sort of visited upon your completely innocent father when it came to these matters. I believe so. I believe so. I, I think there was kind of an atmosphere of you're Italian. You're in the mafia. You're all growing dope. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're doing this, you're doing that. You're connected to organised right. crime and the fact that, you know, my, my parents were pretty successful in running their business as well. There were rumours going around town, which we heard back, that you know, we, we were dealing drugs from the toilets. The police started to harass my family. They would show up at the pub, they would park the Divi van right across the front door. Almost every weekend they would do this, come into the pub, check the fire exits, check the security logbook, ask people for ID. It was just constant. And were other pubs in town getting similar levels of harassment from the police at the time? No, no. I used to frequent the other pubs and uh, as did my siblings too. And you'd never see a police officer anywhere within sight. And in fact, I remember being, as I was a junior footballer, um, playing under 16s football and pretty much our entire team would be in, in the bar of some of the other pubs drinking. Never saw a copper in all the years that we did that. So it was fairly apparent that we were being singled out for some reason. So tell me about this one night when your dad discovered there were some out-of-towners in his pub causing mayhem, causing trouble. It was a Saturday night like like any other. Um, the weekends were usually pretty busy and in the bar were a number of out-of-towners and these out-of-towners were very conspicuous and they identified themselves as being from Melbourne. They were in town to have a good time and there was a number of them there, perhaps a dozen. And they were drinking quite heavily. And as the night progressed, they became more and more rowdy and provocative towards some of the customers and then became violent toward the customers. It was then the sort of situation erupted. They pulled out their badges and said they were from the police. They were undercover. After violence, after the violence that they'd initiated broken out, then they pulled their badges out? Yes, Yes. They'd started assaulting the patrons, pulled a few of them off their stools who were just sitting there having a drink. My brother tells a story. My mum tells this story too. There was an Indigenous customer we had, a guy named Doug, who was as quiet as a mouse, the loveliest guy. I remember him quite well. He'd just sit in the bar and drink a seven-ounce beer. And he was sitting in the corner at a table. And one of the coppers yelled out, I won't repeat the terrible term of abuse. He then went over, grabbed him by the hair, pulled him onto the ground. Three or four of the coppers then laid into him, viciously assaulted him on the floor. One then stood on his head while another of the police officers handcuffed him. And this wasn't isolated. There were a number of patrons who were assaulted 
and then put in the back of the divvy van and taken away. And that night, a number of the patrons who had witnessed what went on, they marched down to the police station, which wasn't far away, and protested out the front for their friends to be released to no avail. The next morning, the police arrived at the front door of the pub, knocked on the door. Mum looked out the window, saw them there, and she was so fearful for my father's safety, she told him not to answer the door because she was worried he'd be assaulted and arrested. Was your dad charged with anything by this police? He was, Richard. He was hit with a a number of charges, um, mostly relating to uh, serving intoxicated patrons and various other breaches of his liquor licence. And those matters then progressed to court. And what did the courts find in regards to your dad? Well, on the day, the prosecution basically did a plea deal with my dad's lawyer. They said to my dad, if you plead guilty to this one charge, we'll drop all the rest of the charges because they knew that they couldn't make them stick. What do you think happened here? These police were from Melbourne. Mm. Why would they make the trip to stall, to create a scene, to start bust heads, arrest people? Do you have any information? Do you have any supposition on why they went to all that effort to create such mayhem in your dad's apartment? I can only think it was at the the behest of the local police. There, there, there could be no other explanation for a squad travelling down from Melbourne to do that. I think they were determined to drive my dad out of business, out of the pub, to essentially make it intolerable for him to continue. Did that work? Well, the one charge that they they did get him to plead guilty on was for having illegal gambling on the premises. And that was for having a footy tipping competition on the wall. Like every other pub in Victoria at the time? Yeah, Dad's lawyer actually pointed out in the court that Every single other pub in town had a footy tipping competition. And in fact, he said to the magistrate, I think even the magistrate's court has a footy tipping competition. And the magistrate said, yes, it does. But he was convicted uh, for having illegal gambling. And thereafter, I suppose, the harassment from the local police didn't let up. We sold the lease on a couple of occasions because... Mum and Dad just had enough. I mean, it's it's a very stressful enterprise, but when you've got this overlay of, of harassment occurring, it almost becomes intolerable. When I got old enough to work behind the bar, I remember just feeling utter dread whenever the police turned up, which was every weekend. And I think it was just a complete abuse of power. So fast forwarding a little here, you moved out of stall to go to Melbourne, to go to Melbourne Uni. I wonder what it was like for you as one of the rare birds being an Italian-Australian in stall to being an Italian-Australian in Melbourne. Oh, Richard, it was it was wonderful and incredibly liberating experience. You know, even though I loved aspects of growing up in the country, and I don't want to present a really jaundiced view of that because there was this wonderful kind of bucolic cliche and freedom of country life of going yabbing and fishing and rabbiting and all that sort of stuff. But you get to a certain point, um, and particularly given what had occurred with our family, that you have to get out. You have to find something else because the walls just close in around you. And so to come to a place which was a clean slate and go to university was a wonderful experience. So you eventually settled on studying criminal justice and eventually you got a job as the advisor to Victoria's police minister. In that role, what did you come to understand about the criminal justice system and how it operates? I guess in my course, when I studied, I learnt a lot about, I guess, the the sociology of crime, the social determinants of why people engage in criminal behaviour, what leads them to that, and just the complexities of that, that it isn't the kind of neat stories that are sometimes presented in tabloid media. And I came to work in the Justice Department 
I was probably a little bit of a, a crusader, like I wanted it to, to make a difference to people's lives. And having been on the receiving end of that kind of abuse of power was certainly why I wanted to work in the justice system. Now, when I came to work there, I worked in a whole lot of different roles and I guess I, I felt a bit like I was a cog in the machine. But when I worked in the ministerial office, which was a very, you know, at the pointy end of decisions being made, I quickly came to realise that particularly the correctional environment, which I was responsible for, that it's basically a warehouse full of the poor and the mentally ill and those with substance abuse issues. And those same people, that same cohort, cycle through the system again and again and again. And the real politic of being in a political office like that, even working for a Labor government, is that you want to appear tough on crime at all costs. And so essentially we'd cook up whatever draconian measure we could do to people in jail because that was what would fly with the media and particularly the tabloid media and would work electorally. Now, I I was really uneasy with that. I, I, I loved my job. I really, really enjoyed it, but I felt a deep discomfort about the way that we approached things. Some things haunt me from that time. I remember there was one prisoner who was on remand at Port Phillip Prison. He had no history of violent offending, not that it matters, but he was there on remand for a burglary. And in his cell, he suffered an asthma attack. The intercom in the cell wasn't working because the private prison operator hadn't been checking it properly. He wrote a note saying, he wrote it to his daughter saying, asthma attack called for help and he died there on the floor. Now, I remember hearing about that at the time when the corrections commissioner rang me and just dealing with it in a political role and trying to sort of come up with a way to deal with the story. But you never forget about things like that. And I think those people who enter that system are really the forgotten people of our, our community those things kind of stay with you. And I suppose I, after working for a time in that environment, I, I, I started to become a little bit disillusioned. Meanwhile, you were starting to write on the side, in and around this high-powered job. Tell me about the crazy plan you hatched to give you some financial independence that would allow you for a while to work as a full-time writer, Mark. <laughs> yeah, well, I can't take all credit for this crazy plan, Richard, because I, I had been talking for a while to, to my partner and my brothers too about, you know, I was a bit unhappy with what I was doing and maybe I wanted to do something creative. And it was my brother, Gary, who sent me an email one day and it had a, a link to an entry form for Millionaire Hot Seat. The Eddie McGuire game show. Correct. Correct. <laughs> and I got back to him, I said, What's this about? I'm not doing this. And he goes, oh, no, no, you should do it. You've always been good at trivia. Like, he said, you should give it a shot, you know. You could win some money and pursue your writing. And I thought, oh, what the hell? Went through the whole audition process and got selected to go on the show. Now, I, I didn't want to tell anyone about this. I was, I was... Well, aside from the fact you were going on national television with it, you mean, yeah, right, okay. Yeah. Well, that's right. I was, I was a little bit embarrassed about it, if, I, if I'm honest, Richard, and I, and I thought as well, I, I was convinced, in fact, that I would bomb out on the very first question like something very, very simple and I would be humiliated. Colleagues would see it. So I took a sick day from work and I went down there and I remember in the um, in the green room, I just got progressively more nervous as the day went on. And I had like a, a packet of Xanax in my, my, my bag. Oh, my God, you took Xanax before you went I think I took like <laughs> over the course of the day, I think I might have taken three or four tablets. <laughs> and so oh, I, I was like dissociating basically by the time we got to go on the show, which was the last episode being filmed. And... You've got all the flashing lights. You've got Eddie Maguire there in front of you. It's, it was terrifying. And I ended up in the, the hot seat for the very, very last question. And what was the very last question? 
Well, it was about the Green Lantern, the superhero, the comic book superhero. And the question was, where does the Green Lantern derive his superpower from? And it's a multiple choice. So I had four choices and uh, like it was power belt, power ring, power shoes, something else. And I did not know the answer. And I, I, I just had a guess. And what did you guess? It's his power ring. And I was correct. I was very, very lucky. And it wasn't a vast amount of money. It was 50 grand. But for me at that time, I, I had a mortgage and that enabled me to go part-time at work. <laughs> that's fantastic. That's, that's, that's stepping up where the Australia Council might... <laughs> Might have otherwise stepped in. That's right. So now we have game shows as an alternative sense of arts funding in Australia, which is very Australian in, in its own way. I do have to say, as a comic book nerd myself, he doesn't get it from his ring. The ring is charged at a lantern. It's a power lantern that he charges his ring on and then he wields the power comes out of the ring. So Don't, don't say that. They might no. take the 50 grand back, Richard. Don't say that. It'll just be a secret between us and... <laughs> Our 500 million <laughs> listeners. <laughs> so this allowed you to become a full-time writer, and this is a wonderful thing. Your parents were able to rise in post-war Australia through hard work and diligence, but you don't feel Australia's quite that place anymore, do you? What do you think of Australia now compared to the Australia that your parents came to? Yeah, I mean, my, my parents came over as essentially unskilled workers and were able to work their way up. I think there was a lot more equality and class mobility in those times. I think nowadays in Australia, we're, we're now more unequal than most countries in the OECD. I think the circumstances that we are born into now have such a huge determining factor on where we'll end up. And when you're coming from difficult circumstances if you think about my dad's circumstances, if you transplanted that to Australia today, growing up in a violent household with an alcoholic parent, you, you would probably be a fair chance of coming into contact with the justice system, not ending up making a go of your life. I think there is a mythology in Australia about the fair go and that anyone can make it. And we, we hold up these examples of those who come from tough circumstances and become a huge success as though that's the norm. But the reality is they are, they are outliers and most of the people who are born into struggle will be doomed to struggle. Your dad died a few years ago and when he did, you wrote a, a piece about him in which you recalled an incident from your childhood when a fox was caught in a trap. Can you tell me about that fox? When, when I was about maybe seven or eight years old, we, we had a farm outside of town. You know, Dad always had a few things on the go, a few irons in the fire, and he had a farm where he ran some sheep. And having sheep, we had issues with, with foxes. And so Dad set a few traps out at the farm. And on this one occasion, he, he went out there and he came back and he went inside the house and I was sitting there and he goes, Mark, Mark, come out to the car. I've got to show you something. And... He opened up the back door to the Kingswood and he had a sort of a Hessian bag there. And inside of it was this baby fox. He had this young fox, which had gotten caught in a trap out at the farm. Now, I, I was kind of perplexed by what was going on because I was thinking, what, what's dad doing bringing the fox home? But he brought it inside. He tended to the wound on its leg. He, he dressed it and wrapped it in a bandage. And we kept it as a pet for a period in the backyard. And that was sort of one of the first insights I had into some of the complexities and contradictions of my father in a way, that he had this caring relationship towards something which we were kind of treating as vermin. The story of the fox didn't end well. It, it got sick and, and then my dad had to euthanise it out at the farm and I remember him coming home and saying to me, he was quite emotional and he said it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. And so he had this real kind of nurturing side to him. And when he passed away in 2020, it was during the, the lockdowns in Melbourne and it was a, a very hard time for everyone. 
And I remember I used to I used to go for, for walks around near where I live, which is near Princess Park and near the Melbourne General Cemetery there. And from time to time I would see foxes out at night. And on this this one night in the weeks after my dad died, I saw this fox and it sort of stopped just outside the cemetery, the same cemetery that my father's buried in, same cemetery my my grandparents, his parents are buried in, just a few hundred metres from my house. And the fox turned and looked at me and I stopped and we stood there and looked at each other and then he ran back into the cemetery. You know, I, I think that when we lose someone, we, we do kind of search for those almost magical connections and we think we see things in nature that are perhaps some kind of connection to those we've lost. But I certainly felt that. And still now, when I see a fox at night, I think of my dad. You say that when the fox was brought home, like he could have just taken that somewhere and looked after it without you knowing, but he wanted you to see it. What do you think he was showing you? I think he, he was showing me, I, I guess, a real loving and caring side for things that others might turn away from. I think he was he was demonstrating something about himself. And I think there was something probably of the child in what he did and some of that childhood that he missed out on. Do you think this was a way of showing you that he wasn't like his father? Men can be gentle and kind. Yeah. My dad was always determined not to live the way that his father did and not to raise us boys or treat his wife the way that his father did. I think he he lived with the scars of his childhood experience, but he didn't repeat the sins of his father in how he lived, and we're very lucky for that. Mike, lovely to speak with you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Richard. Thank you. Mike Brandy's new novel is called Southern Aurora. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, I'm James Valentine and on the brand new season of my podcast Headroom, I want to know what do people believe? I believe that music is like the sinew between the spiritual and the complex. Maybe they believe in karma, heaven, or the innate goodness of people. Even if you only believe that your avocado sandwich is the best avocado sandwich there's ever been. These are the kind of questions I'll be asking some high-profile Australians like George Miller and Claire Wright on my podcast, Headroom, The Belief Series. Available now on the ABC Listen app.